0: is from Zimbabwe. Uh, Many of you may have seen in the news for the last few days about the devastating flooding that impacted Zimbabwe. And uh, that's one of the areas that we support uh, through missions here at Coastal. You guys might have heard who were here for Christmas Eve about the the special offering that we took up for the high school that we are planning on building in Zimbabwe. And so we have uh, played this video for you all just as an update about what's going on. Uh, I was just reading the news and uh, this flood has left hundreds dead, thousands injured. So... We just wanted to play that so we can be aware of what's going on and we can um, keep this country that we are supporting in our prayers. Uh, Faith Ministries is a ministry that we partner with and that we uh, dearly love and support. So, with that said, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Coastal Community Church. My name is Nate. I am the director of ministries here at the Coastal Gloucester campus. So, we are continuing our study in Genesis this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Genesis chapter 42 we are going to be in Genesis 42, 43, and 44. So three chapters. There's no way we could go verse by verse through this passage of scripture. So I'm trusting that you're reading along with us and the reading plan that we've provided for you. I trust that you're somewhat familiar with Joseph's story. It's a pretty popular one. So what we're gonna do is kind of do a flyby over these three chapters this morning and pull out uh, what I believe to be the major theme. But before we jump in, let's recap where we've been so far. Last week, we saw that after 13 years, first in slavery and then in prison, God exalted Joseph to this place of prominence in Egypt. He made him the VP, right? He was second in command to Pharaoh himself. He did this because he gave Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. You guys remember Pharaoh was having some really weird dreams. There was some corn. There were some ugly, skinny cows. There were some fat, attractive cows. And the point of all the dreams was that there was going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph's counsel to Pharaoh was store up grain during the seven years of plenty so that when the seven years of famine come, you will have food left over to distribute to the people. So now let's fast forward. The seven years of plenty have gone by, and we're now in the famine. And everyone from all over this part of the world is coming to Egypt to buy food from Joseph. And now our story in Genesis 42 flashes over back to Canaan, to Joseph's family, to Jacob and to his sons, and they're starving. They're desperate to find a way to get food. And I believe that our story this morning is a beautiful picture of repentance, of genuine repentance. Now, I know that repentance isn't a word that we typically use every day, but I think it's something that we desperately need to talk about. It's something that we really need to think about. Here's just a a quick and simple definition for you. Repentance is turning away from sin. It is a change of mind and a change of heart about sin that leads to a change in behavior. So in my experience, most people are more than willing to admit that they're sinners, right? You know, a lot of older evangelistic strategies were really based around you gotta get them to first to admit that they're a sinner. But unless you're the most narcissistic person in the world, You know that you're not perfect, right? With most people, the problem isn't that I don't know that I'm a sinner. The problem is I don't think that's a problem. But if God is holy and we are sinners, that's a big problem, according to the scriptures. And the only proper response there is repentance. But as we're going to see this morning, there is a big difference in genuine repentance and false repentance, And as I was thinking about this, I thought of a story involving my dog, Rocky. And you see, uh, not to name any names, but older preachers, (laughs) wiser and more experienced, handsome and talented preachers tell stories about their kids, and 25-year-old preachers tell stories about their dogs. (laughs) It's a good rule of thumb. So Mark, you can go ahead and put the picture up on the screen. This is Rocky. He is our 30-pound Australian shepherd, and yes, he is a very good boy. Um, He's really my wife's dog. He likes her more than me. But anyways, my wife insists on buying Rocky these overpriced chew toys, otherwise known as dog beds. Anybody else have a dog that just, he gets a dog bed, he spends 40 bucks at Petco, and he goes, oh, great, now I have something to chew up. Exactly. So one night, we're laying in bed, we're getting ready to go to sleep, the lights are still on, and he sleeps in our room with us, because, you know, that's another issue, but, <laughs> so we're getting ready to go to sleep, and all of a sudden I could hear, rip, 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 I sit up, and I look down, and I see him. He has his back turned to me, and he's like, ruff, ruff, ruff. and I go, Rocky. He turns around, and he dives on top of the bed where he's been ripping it up and looks up at me with the big puppy dog eyes. Like, what, Dad? What are you talking about? And I did the whole bad dog, Rocky, bad dog, all of that, whatever. I lay back down and turn off the lights. A few minutes go by, and I hear, rip, 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 rip. Now, was Rocky genuinely sorry, genuinely repentant about this transgression of tearing up his dog bed? No. The dog was sorry he got caught. Did he, was, he, was there this genuine remorse where he's like, oh, man, they paid 40 bucks for this thing. I mean, dad's a youth pastor. He doesn't have any money. Like, how do we, Like, he, why, I can't tear this up. Like, what are we going to do? No. He was sorry he got caught and he got scolded. And you see, that's at the heart of the difference between genuine repentance and fake repentance. We all know somebody who's just sorry they got caught. But I believe our star story this morning is a beautiful picture of genuine repentance. But before we jump in, let's also keep in mind the big picture story of Genesis. God made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. As we keep going in this book, we find out that this promised snake crusher is going to come through the family of Abraham. And the promise is going to continue through Isaac and then through Jacob and then through one of Jacob's 12 boys. But do you see what the problem is? This family is broken. It's dysfunctional. You've got 10 of the brothers that hate the favorite brother so much that they beat him almost to death, throw him in a pit, and then sell him into slavery. How on earth is God going to keep his promise to bring the savior of the world into the world through this dysfunctional family? The answer It's through bringing these 10 wicked men to repentance. And that's something that we really need to learn about this morning. So without any more introduction, let's jump in. Genesis 42, starting in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. So Joseph's brothers came to Egypt to buy food. They did not recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. So so Joseph intentionally conceals his identity in order to test his brothers. And now, let's not be too hard on Joseph's brothers for not recognizing Joseph. He was a 17-year-old kid the last time they saw him, and over at least 20 years have gone by. He's a middle-aged man now, and before we beat up on the brothers too much, how many of you would we recognize if we put your high school yearbook photo up here on the screen? Maybe a few, but it's, let's not be too tough on them here. But anyways, Joseph intentionally hid his identity from his brothers for a reason. He put them through this series of tests, and our text doesn't tell us exactly why Joseph put, him through these, put them through these tests, But I think he probably did it in order to test his brothers to find out whether or not they have changed, to find out whether they had repented, whether they were the same men who would beat him and sell him into slavery. So Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. And of course, they protest against this. They say, of course, we're not spies. We are honest men. Yeah, right. So he has them thrown in prison for three days. And after that, he tells them to go back to Canaan and come back with your little brother, Benjamin. And he would keep one of the brothers, Simeon, captive until they returned with Benjamin. And he wouldn't sell them any more food until they came back with Benjamin. And the brothers then interpret their dilemma as the judgment of God for the sins of their past. Look with me at verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, And we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And even though their sin against Joseph happened 20 years ago, their consciences have been awakened to their guilt. And this leads us to our first point this morning. If you're taking notes, write this down. Repentance always starts with confession. Confession is always the first step. We have to sincerely confess our sins to God and To those that we have sinned against. Joseph's brother said that we are guilty concerning our brother. And I'd like to make three points about confession this morning. First, confession must be honest. We need to have the humility to admit that we are sinners against God and that our sin often hurts other people. And guys, it's so common for us to make excuses to try to justify our sins or even use language to try to dress up and sanitize our sin to kind of make it look like it's not a big deal. So let's use anger for an example. I have known people who will just get so angry, and they'll fly off the handle at the slightest provocation. And then when you say something to them about it, it's, I'm just a passionate person. It's my, just my personality. It's my upbringing. It's my circumstances. I can't help it. But if we are going to take sin and repentance seriously, we've got to use biblical language in dealing with our sin And those anger issues that I just mentioned, it's not just your personality, right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, when we lash out at other people in anger, we are murdering them in our hearts. Genuine repentance, first and foremost, means calling a spade a spade. The great Puritan theologian John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Genuine repentance means being honest. And second, we must confess our sins to God and to those we have sinned against. Every sin is ultimately against God because we are made in his image. And part of what that entails is this responsibility to live for God's glory in everything that we do. Every sin is ultimately against God. So when we become aware of sin in our lives, we have to go to God first in confession. But we also have to go and confess that to the people that we have sinned against. We need to have the humility to be honest about what we have done and to go to them and ask for forgiveness. And I also believe there is wisdom in having an accountability partner, a small group leader, an elder, someone in your life that you can talk to about these things, that you can confess your sins to. That's part of what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus, like our mission at Coastal here is. Speaking from my experience, I've got a friend who I talk to almost weekly, and we're honest with each other about the struggles in our lives. I think every one of us need that. Finally, confession brings peace to our souls. Confession brings peace to our souls. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Church, when we try to hide from God like Adam and Eve in the garden, when we grab the fig leaves and we try to cover up our sins, I can promise you, it's only going to make you miserable. But when we confess our sin and we forsake it, we will obtain mercy. I know some of you have probably been burdened for a long time with the same struggle, the same sin that has just been kicking your butt. But I have a precious promise of God's word for you this morning. According to the Apostle John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you know what it's like to to finally open up and to finally be honest about something in your life and to really be vulnerable with someone just for them to step on you, right? Just for them to kick you while you're down. But our God isn't like that. When we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us So bring your sin into the light. We just sang that our God brings restoration. He brings restoration in our lives and in the relationships that have been fractured by sin. So let's keep moving into chapter 43. The brothers went back to their father. They told him what happened and they asked if they could bring Benjamin back. And Jacob says, Absolutely not. I will not bring Benjamin, you cannot bring Benjamin back with you. And remember, Benjamin is the last remaining son of the favorite wife, Rachel. Benjamin is his favorite, so he won't risk under any circumstances losing his favorite son. After this whole series in Genesis, all of the the pain and the bad circumstances that we've seen caused by showing favoritism, Jacob still hasn't learned this lesson. The family is going to die of starvation and he won't let the favorite brother go until he gets hangry. Now, who knows the difference between hungry and hangry? Oh, yeah. Hangry is when you are so hungry that it makes you angry. See, you guys, it's still early. During the 11 o'clock service, you know, a little later in the sermon, some people start getting hangry. They start getting that look in their eyes like, oh, when am going I'm hungry. Well, it, might, it shouldn't come as a shock to you guys that I really like to eat. You know, It gets to a certain point around here in the office. You can ask him for validation. If I don't get my lunch at, by a certain time, I start getting a little grumpy. Um, well, so the, I think when you get hangry, you get to a point where you would lower your standards on what you're willing to eat and what you're willing to do for food. We just talked about Zimbabwe. Well, three years ago, I went on a mission trip to Zimbabwe with a group of men here at Coastal. And it was just, it was an awesome experience. I learned a lot. It was my first mission trip. So we went to this church out in the bush. I mean, there was no electricity, no running water, no refrigeration, nothing like that. And it was just a wonderful experience. This church was so kind and gracious. They were so happy for us to be there. Um, And it was about three or four in the afternoon. I hadn't had lunch yet starting to get a little hangry. I'm not really one of the type for roughing it when it comes to food. So we get there, and this church was so kind as to throw this big banquet for us. There was this big table. There was all this food. It included all of this meat. And now, I just said, there's no refrigeration. There's no electricity. So, so we have no clue when this meat was prepared, how this meat was prepared, how long it's been sitting out in the sun, whatever. So all of the other wiser, I use my words carefully, wiser guys on the trip are like really hesitant, like, okay, I'll just have one little bite. I want to be polite. I don't want to be rude, yada, yada, yada. Not me. Like, it might as well have been Golden Corral. <laughs> I get my plate. I load it up. I am ready to go to town. And this whole time, Pastor Sean was there, and he's trying to stop me. He's trying to get my attention, but not be obvious. He's like, hey, hey. I didn't see him. I'm just... <laughs> and so finally, he comes over me and whispers in my ear, Nate, you have to eat all of it. You can't throw any of it away. That would be really rude. And I'm like, okay, what's the problem? Like, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat all this food. So we had just bought this church in Zimbabwe a gift of 100 plastic chairs. So I go and I sit down in one of the chairs to eat. And next thing you know, chair breaks. Whole plate of food goes all over me. It didn't matter. I still ate all of it. Um, But the moral of the story is, and by the way, I ended up getting really sick that night, if anyone was wondering. Yeah. So the moral of the story is when you're hangry, you are willing to lower your standards for food and you're willing to change your mind about what you're willing to do to get food. And in our story, Jacob finally gets angry enough to ask his sons to go back to Egypt for food. But you're not taking Benjamin. He still says, both he and his sons know that this mysterious man in Egypt will not give them food unless Benjamin comes back with him. And at this point, something incredible happens the turning point in our entire story. Genesis 43, verse eight. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Do you catch what's happening here? This is the same guy whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery 20 years earlier. He is now stepping up as the leader of this family. And this leads us to our second point this morning. Genuine repentance leads to a commitment to change. Judah and his brothers confessed their sin against Joseph, but now they are committed to acting differently this time around. Judah sold Joseph into slavery, but now he is volunteering to protect Benjamin with his life. You see, true repentance always starts with confession, but it never ends there. It never ends there. It is not enough to feel really bad about what we've done and say, sorry. Repentance always has to lead to a commitment to change. Because like I said in the introduction, we all know there's a big difference in being sorry and being sorry you got caught. And so many times, like Rocky, we'll make this mess and then we'll cover it up. And then as soon as the consequences go away, we'll jump right back in. And according to scripture, this is not repentance. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 wrote, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Genuine repentance requires godly grief, church. You see, worldly grief and godly grief can be hard to tell apart in the moment because they both produce these emotional, teary-eyed, snotty-faced confessions, but only one of them leads to repentance. Here are a few differences in worldly grief and godly grief. When I'm in godly grief, I am sorry that I have offended the holiness of God and that my sin has hurt my neighbor. And when I'm in worldly grief, I'm just sorry that I got caught. Those in godly grief long to be free from sin. Those in worldly grief long to be free from sin's consequences. The wages of sin is what, church? Death. Those in worldly grief want to keep the sin and lose the death. But it doesn't work that way. Finally, worldly grief seeks to cover up our sin and hide it and make it this big secret so that no one ever finds out what we've done. But godly grief drags sin into the light so that it can be killed and we can be healed. Godly grief is what leads to repentance. So let's keep moving into chapter 44 now. After the brothers return to Egypt with Benjamin, Joseph throws a big party. And clearly, Benjamin is the favorite at this party. He's giving him all of this food. He's the favorite yet again. But when the brothers set out to return to Canaan, Joseph decides to give them one final test. He plants his expensive, valuable silver cup in Benjamin's pack so that it will look like Benjamin has stolen from him. When the brothers get a distance from the city, he sends his guys to go and get them and they realize what's happened. And at this point, the brothers are brought back before Joseph and they think that's it. We have been caught stealing from the second in command to Pharaoh itself. We are all going to die. That's it. But then Joseph says, listen, only the one who has stolen it needs to stay and be punished. The rest of you go in peace to your father. So Benjamin stays with me. The rest of you go home. Are any of you guys picking up on what Joseph is doing here? He is putting his brothers back in the exact same situation they were in with him 20 years earlier. Are you going to abandon the favorite brother into slavery for silver again and go back and crush your father's heart? Or have things changed this time around? And at this point, Judah steps up as the leader of this family. This portion of scripture that I'm about to read to you is the longest speech in Genesis and the most moving monologue that I've ever read. It's lengthy, but I think it's worth reading in its entirety this morning. So Genesis 44, starting in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame forever before my father all my life. Church, pay close, close attention to the next two verses. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is amazing. The same Judah who sold the favorite brother into slavery 20 years earlier is now offering to sell himself as a slave rather than sell his brother again. One commentator in Genesis said this, the transformation of the brothers represented in Judah is every bit as miraculous as the transformation in the status of Joseph. And this leads us to our last point this morning. Genuine repentance leads to a transformed life. Judah is clearly not the same person he once was. God transformed this wicked, sinner into a humble and selfless and courageous leader. And I know we've said this a lot throughout this series, but it's worth saying again, guys, there is no one who is too far gone for the grace of God. No one. There is no sin too big to forgive. There is no relationship too broken for God to restore. There is no marriage that's too far gone. There's no family that's too dysfunctional. We serve a God that brings restoration, that brings healing that brings peace into our lives, no matter who you are or what you have done, God can transform you just like he transformed Judah. And he can use you for his glory. You see, Judah put others first. Years earlier, he was only concerned with saving his own skin. But now he is willing to sacrifice himself for the good of his family. He used the word father 14 times in this speech. He didn't care what his father felt when he came back 20 years earlier with that ripped up bloody tunic and said he was eaten by a wild animal and broke his father's heart. Now he can't bear the thought of hurting his father. And not only that, he did all of this for Benjamin, for the favorite brother. They hated Joseph so much for being the favorite. And now it doesn't matter because he has been transformed from the inside out. He loves his brother no matter what. When we have been transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it makes us others focus. Our tendency as sinners is to focus only on ourselves. Sin makes us look at every person, at every situation, at every event in our lives and think, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this? But when we have been set free from sin through Jesus Christ, we start to genuinely love others, not for what they can do for us, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this leads us to the main point of the speech and the main point of my sermon this morning. Judah offered himself as a substitute. Judah offered to take Benjamin's punishment in his place out of love for his brothers and out of love for his father. This is the ultimate sign that he has truly repented of what he has done. He has come to the place where he would rather give up his life than repeat the sins of his past. The story of the transformation and repentance of Judah is incredible. But church, as we saw last week, how how that story was so much bigger than just Joseph. This story is so much bigger than just Judah. You see, years and years later, On Jacob's deathbed, he told Judah these words in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jacob prophesied that from the line of Judah would come a line of kings, and from that line, eventually a great king would come. And to him would be the obedience of the peoples. And years and years later, Judah had a great, 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 great grandson, I didn't count those, named David. This little shepherd boy walks down into a valley one day where there is this giant saying, send me a man to fight with me. If we win, you will be our slaves. But if he wins, we will be your slaves. And David walks into the valley as the substitute representative of all of God's people, defeats the enemy of the people of God on their behalf, thereby winning victory on behalf of all of God's people. And God made a promise to David that one day there would be a son born to his family who would be the king of an eternal kingdom. And years and years later, King David had a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson who was a greater king, who was the lion of the tribe of Judah. This great king Jesus, just like his ancestors, offered himself as a substitute on behalf of all of God's people. You see, when Judah comes face to face with Joseph in this confrontation right at the climax of this story. He basically says to Joseph, take me instead of my brother. Let his guilt be placed on me. Let his punishment be given to me so that my father will be pleased with his salvation. Church, does that sound familiar? You see, unlike Benjamin, all of us really are guilty. We have all rebelled against the holy God of the universe and for that, we deserve judgment. But we have an older brother who out of love for us and out of love for his father, with the names of all of us who would trust in Christ written on his heart, he went to the cross saying, take me instead of them. Let their sin be imputed to me. Let their punishment be given to me so that my Father will be pleased with their salvation. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Church, this is the glory of the gospel of Christ. I pray that Coastal Community Church will never get tired of this gospel. Sometimes, some of you might have heard this. This might be the millionth time you've heard this, but you need to hear it a million more. We will spend an eternity of eternities celebrating what God did on Calvary for us, that the eternal and almighty Son of God, who is too holy for angels to even look at, became a curse for you that the creator and sustainer of the entire universe who speaks and galaxies pop into existence became sin for me. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when we repent and we turn from our sins and we trust in the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, We will have a transformed life here and now, an eternal life in the future. So as Pastor Sean would say, what is the so what? Or as Pastor David would say, what are some thoughts to take home? I'm, I'm a new preacher. I still don't have any catchphrase picked out for how this sermon applies to you. But I do want to leave you with two thoughts this morning. First, repentance is how we respond to the gospel. I know that many of you are probably confused by that. Wait, I thought we believe in the gospel, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes, right? Not repents. You see, repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. True belief always includes repentance and true repentance always includes belief. Think about it this way. If God's over here and sin's over here, I can't turn to God without turning away from my sin. Belief always includes repentance. And if you're here this morning, maybe you're visiting with us and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, please don't leave here this morning unsure about eternity because eternity is on the line. I would love to talk to you after the service. Pastor David would love to talk to you after the service. Please come and find one of us and we can let you know how your sins are forgiven and how you can have a transformed and eternal life with Christ. And for the believers in the room this morning, repentance is a lifestyle. It's not just something you do once to become a Christian. It's something that marks the entire Christian life. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. Because we will never be completely free from sin on this side of eternity, there's always going to be sin in our lives that disrupts our fellowship with God and excuse me, our relationships with other people. And maybe there's someone in this room that's saying, well, yeah, I know that. And, you know, as I look at the Ten Commandments, you know, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything lately. So I'm doing pretty good, right? I would humbly suggest to that person who would say, yeah, I get the whole repent thing when you're like King David and you you commit adultery and kill somebody, but I don't really have anything to repent of. To that person, I would say, I would commend to you a prayer from the Psalms. Try me, O Lord, search my heart. Most of the time, when we're not aware of sin in our lives, it isn't because there isn't any. It's because we're at peace with it. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Some of you need to go out of here today and you have a phone call that you need to make. You've got this relationship, maybe it's with a mom, dad, sister, brother, friend, someone, that the relationship has been broken and you need to have an honest talk with them. But let me leave you with a word of encouragement because I've been heavy this morning. God gives us the strength that we need to obey him. When we commit to living for Christ, he will give us the strength that we need to turn from sin and to follow him more wholeheartedly. God transformed a wicked sinner like Judah, and he can transform you too. The worship team is going to go ahead and come back up. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go out singing. Father, we are truly amazed by your grace shown to us. Lord, we are so undeserving of the kindness that you show us every day. Yet you loved us and you sent your only son to pay our debt in our place. And Lord, you bring restoration. We celebrate that this morning. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we worship you. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.